Welcome to American Indian and Alaska Native Living, a program designed to educate and inspire listeners throughout Indian country. American Indian and Alaska Native Living is hosted by Dr. David DeRose, a board-certified specialist in both internal medicine and preventive medicine. Dr. DeRose has a wide range of experience with Native health issues, and he is here today to help you learn more about your health. Here is Dr. DeRose. Welcome to American Indian and Alaska Native Living. I'm Dr. David DeRose. Today we're speaking about a topic that is vital. It doesn't matter where you're at in the path of life. The topic today is one that I believe will help you, will engage with you. Some of you know we've been especially focusing on a health condition that is affecting people throughout the world. It is not just a Native American issue, especially in the Western world our waistlines are enlarging. There are progressive challenges throughout North America with obesity, with overweight, and we're trying to bring some encouraging words to help in that domain. But what we're going to speak about today, although it does have special relevance as we're running currently, as this broadcast is airing today, we are running a series on weight loss. We call it the Fast 8 program. Some of you have heard about it. We're doing things that engage with that subject, but it's also something, today's topic, that can help you, whether you're dealing with diabetes, whether it's high blood pressure, heart disease, cancer, you go down the whole list of health concerns as well as other whole person life concerns. You say, what could we be talking about today? It really is what we're calling a journey to wholeness. To help us in this very important dialogue is my special guest today. It's Dr. Patricia Nesbitt. Tricia, it's great to have you with us today. Great to be here, David. Thank you so much for having me. Tricia, you have uh, earned a doctorate in ministry, and uh, some of your emphasis was looking at these themes that relate to hope and wholeness and dealing with disease processes. Tell us a little bit about your background and and why this uh, really drew you in, why you did research on this topic. Sure. Thank you. I've always been interested in the topic of hope. In fact, when I was young, I had encountered a journey actually where I'd lost my dad when I was 14 and he had been diagnosed with cancer. And and we went through this journey together as a family. And I watched how each of us processed that um, journey of grief. And I realized how important um, hope was and healing and you know, what this process was like. So kind of watching my mom go through the process and my siblings and myself, it really interested me in what sort of creates resilience, what helps people navigate unwanted change, uh, what are the things needed for that to be able to to know that you can actually get through, you know, travel through adversity and challenges. And so so I was very interested in that when I was young. And um, and then as I got older, I actually studied to, for the ministry and actually became uh, a chaplain and worked at different hospitals and for hospice and also a pastor. And in my role as a pastor and a chaplain, again, I really saw how important hope played in, and was vital in the roles and the lives of, of those that I was ministering to. And so even as a young student, ministerial student, um, I kind of thought of myself really as a minister of hope. Um, and just because I just saw how important it was for whatever our circumstances, 
So that's kind of some of that journey. You know, I so appreciate people with chaplaincy training. I mean, several of the things that I think that training tends to uh, develop in people. One is a sensitivity to people, whatever walk they're in spiritually. So we're definitely trying to engage with people across Indian country and beyond. Some may come from more traditional native spiritual perspectives. Others may have embraced uh, you know, other forms of spirituality. And I just love, you know, that aspect of chaplaincy because you're working with people where they're at. The other thing is, you know, you talk about adversity for families, for individuals. Uh, I don't know any place where things seem to be so acute and so intense as in a hospital setting, and especially when you start working with that hospice end-of-life population. So, Tricia, we're just so thankful uh, for the background you have and then for how you've tried to bring this whole perspective of hope into some of the most challenging perspectives. So as we frame this in relation to something that I've been especially interested in and that many of our listeners are interested in, we've had just an overwhelming response to the FAST-8 program. Uh, For those of you tuning in today, if you're not familiar with it, you can learn about the program by going to timelesshealinginsights.org slash FAST-8. That's F-A-S-T, then the number 8. It will take you right to the program information. You can download a handout. It is a weight and health optimization program. And why this is so interesting to me, Tricia, is we've been on this journey now with actually over a 1,000 people have engaged with the, the program since we launched it. To me, a lot of people, as they're looking at their weight, it seems like a prescription for hopelessness. Uh, they've tried so many times. Maybe they've had some success and they've failed. Talk about, uh, from your perspective, why hope and why this idea of journeying to wholeness is important for people who've had a lot of challenges when it comes to whether it's weight loss or whether it's diabetes control or other health goals. Yeah, thank you. Well, you know, I believe that we are hope-based creatures in that we actually thirst for hope. We we long for hope. Um, and as we'll talk a little bit about later, there are other things that we are created in longing for. But one of the um, most important things um, that is vital to to change, to navigate very difficult situations is hope. And when we're talking about journey to wholeness, um, Journey to Wholeness was the name, the title for a project that I used for my dissertation, actually. Um, it was a curated health project using health principles in the context of a small group. And I know that title has been used before for many other different programs. And uh, this was done in a local uh, setting near where I was attending a university. So um, the Journey to Wholeness name sort of appealed to me because, like you said, you know, it's it's a journey it's so important to remember that it is a journey. It's not just something, uh, whatever we're going through, whatever season we're in, it's so important for us to just remember that this is a journey and that in any journey, it's not a sprint. It's, it's more of a marathon and it's one step at a time, one day at a time, and that it's a process. So that part is, is just really important for us to understand that there is a process to wholeness and to healing. 
and that it's important for us to honor that process, you know, and not take ourselves out of a process that though even a painful process, though there may be a painful process, there's something in the process itself that is actually can be very um, sacred to us. And so I think that that's important for us to honor the journey, honor the steps, honor the pain sometimes, the joy um, that can be in, you know, our lives, whether whatever our challenge may be. Um, and so I think it's important to sort of embrace that. And then the wholeness part is the concept around that is that, you know, wholeness is not just about being healthy, necessarily physically healthy. Right. I mean, you can be physically healthy and still not be whole. Mm. When I think of wholeness, I think of that integration of social, emotional, physical, spiritual. And, you know, we're complex beings. And so uh, wholeness wouldn't really just be health in just one place or one area or one aspect. And that's actually good news, though wholeness may be sort of a challenge for us to sort of reach for something to reach for an object, something in the future, or maybe in the the present to reach for, but wholeness itself is kind of something that's not linear. It's actually, there's a journey to it, but, and there's a process, I believe, but it's something beyond just the physical, the emotional, the spiritual. And so when you're, we're thinking about wholeness, it's kind of sometimes beyond even things that we can describe. And that's where that concept of wholeness actually very beautifully can pave the way into the concept of hope. Because hope is something that's bigger than us. It's bigger than our circumstances. It's bigger than us, you know, our problems. And so when we're really reaching for wholeness or journeying towards wholeness, it's important for us to leave room for that, to leave room that there's there's bigger uh, sort of aspects that help to equip us in our well-being. I know this is not just a theoretical construct. You know, you didn't just read books about this, uh, Dr. Nesbitt, but you have a personal journey where you struggled with hope. It wasn't just something that was an experience as a child when your father died but you've gone through some health challenges yourself. Do you mind sharing a little bit about that and how that kind of informed your research? Yeah, absolutely. So when I was attending university, um, I actually had a full scholarship to my university. I was sponsored actually by a healthcare institution where I had been working as a chaplain. And um, while I was there studying, I wound up developing a health crisis um, I didn't know actually what was happening for me, but I started realizing that I was having different symptoms like dizziness and and um, difficulty concentrating and fatigue and all kinds of different things that were starting to pop up for me. And uh, it took, it kind of like, how do I say, it sort of developed slowly but um, but it was becoming more and more noticeable that I was starting to be struggling with my health. I was in school full time. I was working uh, part time as a chaplain on call, you know, losing some sleep, being on call um, overnights and different things like that. But there was a point in my health eventually where 
I broke mm. and it was, it, it was sort of overnight, but not, you know, you could see, you know, that this was developing over time. And, but I remember the, the moment that it broke, I was on call and I was working with family and then I, I was called to two different hospitals and that night because they were sister hospitals and, and I started having excruciating pain in my head and, um, you know, something was, I knew something was wrong, but I couldn't figure out what it was. Um, I went home and I uh, wasn't able to go back into work the next day. And for that week, I remember just having a, an array of symptoms that just kind of hit me all at once. And, you know, I remember the doctors trying to figure it out, you know, what, what tests to do. Um, and I, I remember actually taking, you know, they were checking my heart, of course, too, and different things. Um, but it was after one of these tests, actually a stress test that I had taken, where I don't know if I had just overexerted or, you know, it was a combination of things, but I wound up not being able to walk the next day. Wow. And it was so, I was so um, broken, I guess is all I could say. And so the doctors were doing the best they could to try and understand what was happening for me. Um, and I had some really great, you know, doctors that were with me and trying to help me. I was a young person. Uh, I was in my late thirties, um, newly married, you know, I had some support, but you know, it wasn't something we could figure out right away. So, um, but that day I remember trying to climb up the stairs. We lived on a three story uh, apartment and I actually couldn't pull myself up. I couldn't walk up to the stairs. And so it was very scary. And, uh, it took me, my husband actually would have to help me get from like, from the bed to the kitchen or from the bed to the living room or wherever. And I just in pretty much what seemed like overnight, I had basically crashed in my health. Wow. This is really a story that you've drawn us into Tricia. And we're interested to seeing where it goes, but we do have to step away just briefly. So I'm talking with Dr. Patricia Nesbitt. She's talking about hope and how you can be on a journey to wholeness. She's sharing her own story. You want to hear how she gets some resolution and the things that she has then brought to other people because they are things that you'll be able to relate to and use in your own life and in the lives of those you love. I'm Dr. David DeRose. We'll be back with more right after this. Today's broadcast has been pre-recorded. However, if you have questions about today's show or would like further information, please reach out to us on the web at A-I-A-N-L dot O-R-G. That stands for American Indian Alaska Native Living. Again, A-I-A-N-L dot org. Or you can call us at 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. We'll be right back after this. We are strong. We are resilient. And we will get through this together. But these are stressful times, and it's important to also practice good self-care. It's normal to feel overwhelmed, anxious, or afraid. But there is hope. Reach out to someone. Connect with your friends. Stay in touch with your community. And know that you are not alone. Learn more at wearebroadcasters.com slash hope. Furnished by the National Association of Broadcasters and this station. 
When Jim died, I wondered if I would be able to keep the farm. Then I heard about the USDA's loan program for socially disadvantaged farmers and ranchers. It's for women and minorities who may be having trouble getting credit. Once I was approved, the USDA's Farm Service Agency helped me get the credit I needed. Now I don't have to sell, and I can pass the farm down to my kids the way Jim's dad passed it down to him. I know he'd like that. Contact your local USDA Service Center or visit www.fsa.usda.gov. Social Security is with you through life's journey from birth to retirement. As your life changes year to year, so do your needs. For over 80 years, Social Security has helped to meet your needs and is committed to improving access to the services that make a difference in your life. Today, you can verify your earnings, estimate your future benefits, apply for retirement, manage your benefits, and even change your address all from the comfort of your home. Social Security's online services help put you in control with secure access to your information anytime, anywhere, allowing you to spend more time with family, friends, or simply just enjoying the day. Social Security, securing today and tomorrow. See what you can do online at socialsecurity.gov. Produced at U.S. taxpayer expense. You're listening to Dr. David DeRose on American Indian and Alaskan Native Living. Your comments and questions are welcome. Call now at 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. Here again is Dr. DeRose. Welcome back to American Indian and Alaskan Native Living. I'm Dr. David DeRose. My guest, Dr. Patricia Nesbitt. Patricia has been sharing a journey with us how uh, a healthy young individual suddenly finds herself in the midst of uh, a busy work schedule with health issues and what we would all call a health crisis, the inability to walk, terrible headaches. Tricia, this is sounding to a physician like me pretty serious. Tell us a little bit more maybe about what was going through your mind when you're having these symptoms. Yeah, so um, it was surprising and um, it was really hard to see that I was having such serious issues. It was especially hard because we couldn't really figure out what exactly was wrong. And so I think that made it worse. So I think there was a time there in that initial crisis where I really didn't know what to do. And I wasn't sure really how to navigate this because I didn't really have an answer. There was nothing black and white to help me understand what was going on. And, you know, they had run tests to rule a lot of things out, which they, um, the, the physicians had. And so people weren't really finding or putting their finger on what the issue was. But I did remember at that time how important it was. A thought came across my mind that it was important for me to keep moving Mm. and to be upright. There's a a book I read and it said that God made that our creator, their God, you know, I believe in God so that God made man upright, a person upright. And so that inspired me to start walking and getting up and getting moving and um, realizing that I wasn't going to necessarily hurt myself by Mm -hmm by keeping to move, you know? And so I think, so my husband would actually kind of 
walk me, so to speak, like around, you know, we would take little steps around the house or little steps around, eventually little steps around the neighborhood or the, not even the neighborhood, but just the house or the yard. And so I realized I did need to keep moving um, and that there was nothing showing that I shouldn't move or that it was going to be harmful to me with all the tests. So that's kind of was really important mm -hmm. for me mm -hmm. to make sure that I did that. Yeah, I'll tell you, this is one of the dynamics that comes into play when we speak a lot uh, about chronic diseases. You know, you mentioned activity. So whether we're speaking about weight loss, whether we're speaking about diabetes or high blood pressure, heart disease, all of these conditions, activity is something that is protective or beneficial. And I'll be honest with you, one of my concerns as I work with patients, as we do programs like the free live program that we're doing, the Fast Aid program, one of the concerns I have is that people have a history where exercise and activity in some places has been labeled a burden. It's been labeled a hardship. It's something that's not your friend. Now, I know as I speak in Indian country, I, I had a guest on recently speaking about you know, traditions in some native communities where, where running and activity was, was just valued. It was, you know, culturally rewarded. But I find with a lot of people who were raised in the 20th, 21st centuries, they didn't, even if they're native in background, they didn't grow up with this value that physical activity was good. In fact, it's the doctor telling you, you know, you better exercise or you got to get more activity. Can you kind of walk us through that a little bit, Tricia? Was that something that you dealt with or not? Yeah, I think I had to kind of make that personal decision myself to move past whatever fear that I had that maybe this was going to make something worse um, by using that wisdom of knowing, hey, you know, we're, we're created to move. You know, I'm an athletic person. And even though I'm struggling whatever, with whatever this may be, it's still important for me to do some of that. And not overwhelm myself, you know, because rest, movement and rest, that balance was really important so that I wasn't overexerting and kind of having wisdom of knowing like when to rest and when to, when to kind of lie down and, or I mean, when to move. So yeah, that was, that was key. And of course, we're not telling anyone on this show that we don't want them to follow their doctor's advice. Of course, you know, you're, Healthcare providers, they're going to be able to help uh, let you know whether it is safe or whether it isn't safe to be doing certain types of activity with the conditions you're dealing. But don't disqualify yourself, I think, is one of the messages that I'm hearing, Tricia. Don't say you can't because of this diagnosis or you, you can't be active because it brings up certain feelings or emotions. If you've gotten a, an A-OK -okay from your doctor to do certain types of physical activity will then embrace it, even if there are some challenges associated with it. Is that kind of what you're saying, uh, Tricia? Is that fair? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, just making sure that I was continuing to not, you know, be afraid to move, but continuing to move and not going, you know, not knowing that my doctors didn't know what was happening. Um, I think that was important for me to still um prescribe to myself what was most helpful that I knew, going back to the knowledge that I knew would be good. And so another part of this process was that I realized I needed to look away from the problem mm. because uh, I didn't know what was happening for me. And um, there was a point where, so this there was a kind of a crisis where everything kind of came on. 
And then later on, the days turned into mm. more like weeks. Wow. And then the weeks turned into months and so on. And so this was not something that was resolved for or even diagnosed for a long period of time. And so during that time, I realized, you know, I had to make, I had to navigate this unwanted change. And I had to slow down with my studies at school, talk to my professors who were very understanding, which I'm grateful for. I actually mm. had to step away from my job. They were understanding as well, but, you know, I clearly couldn't, couldn't do what I was doing before. So there could have been a lot of, I mean, there was a lot of lifestyle change that was quickly happening to me, but then there was lifestyle change that I knew I needed to implement in order to preserve. And so I remember that it could be really easy to get mm -hmm. discouraged when you don't know what's happening. But what happened that was really important for me was that I needed to be intentional with was to not look at the problem. Because when, you know, I was trying to figure it out, I was reading books, I was, you know, scanning the internet, trying to understand my situation. But I realized that I didn't necessarily know. But what I did know, I, I had to turn my mind and my perspective to what I did know, what I already knew that would be healthy. And so that was key to look away from the problem, not knowing what it was, and look to what I knew was healthy. I so appreciate you sharing your journey. And obviously, the fact that, uh, well, maybe it's not obvious to those who are tuning in, but from my interactions with you uh, over some time, I've realized that you've gone beyond this condition. You were ultimately diagnosed and got treatment. I think our listeners, our viewers are kind of wondering, well, how does this all turn out? you Got a, what sounds like a chronic disease. You're struggling. You're out of work. From a healthy person, now you're someone who people are calling ill. How do you get through all this? Yeah. So, um, you know, they eventually diagnosed me with actually, I had Lyme disease, which I didn't realize I had. Um, and so I was working in the dark trying to get healthy. Um, and then you know, eventually there was a diagnosis that was a, you know, medical diagnosis and I was able to get, you know, further treatment, uh, some antibiotics and such that were helpful. But in, up until that point where I knew I was doing a lot of natural remedies and, and basic, not really natural remedies, but basic lifestyle changes that helped me. In fact, that's when I met you, Dr. DeRose, uh, David, and your wife, Sonia, was at one of the universities, uh, the classes at the university was on some of this holistic health and talking with you and your wife, we had discussed, you know, some of the perplexities that I was facing and um, you guys were able to encourage me to even think about some of these other lifestyle changes that I hadn't really um, internalized as much as I had before. Yeah, we were privileged to get acquainted with you. I think I was a visiting lecturer. Is that right? Am I remembering the situation right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So that was, uh, it's always good to engage with people and it's, it's always good to see people take concepts and implement them. And it's so good to see you on the other side of the challenges, you know, having gotten the diagnosis, made those lifestyle changes and then translating that into, uh, really giving back helping other people on their journeys to better health and to wholeness. Tricia, we do have to step away just briefly. I want to remind our listeners, though, Tricia uh, 
Dr. Patricia Nesbitt is not leaving. We're going to continue to talk with her. We're going to especially speak about some resources you can tap into that are immediately available to you. We'll be telling you about uh, how we're using some of those in a free, interactive, actual virtual program that uh, you could still theoretically jump on even at this point. We call it Fast 8. And if you're just hearing about it for the first time, the website is www.timelesshealinginsights.org slash fast8. That's F-A-S-T and the number 8. So timelesshealinginsights.org slash fast8. We'll tell you how Trish is doing some things that are partnering with us in that program and how you can take some of that and utilize it, whether you ever jump on the Fast Day program or not, some things that can help in your community, your tribal uh, center, maybe you're a tribal health care provider, maybe you're on tribal council, some practical things that can make a difference for you. Stay tuned. We'll be back with the second half of the program shortly. American Indian and Alaska Native Living will continue in a moment. If you have questions or comments about today's pre-recorded broadcast, please contact us on the web at AIANL.org or call 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. A message from the National Police Association. It used to be that any able-bodied person would offer to assist a police officer in danger. Now, passers-by are more likely to take a video. There's a better use for your phone when an officer's in trouble. Call 911. Tell the operator where you are and what you see. Then, start your video to provide evidence later. To learn more about how you can assist law enforcement, visit nationalpolice.org. That's nationalpolice.org. Unlike other health concerns, mental illness is not always easy to see. Depression won't show up on an eye chart, and you can't measure it on your bathroom scale. Sorting out a mental health concern is not something to attempt on your own. You won't find a bipolar disorder by looking at a thermometer. Like many other health conditions, help for mental illness takes professional diagnosis and treatment. Anxiety won't just go away under a stick-on bandage. So the sooner you seek treatment, the better. If you or a loved one has a mental health concern, don't go it alone. Find out what to do. For 24-hour free and confidential information and treatment referral, call 1-800-662-HELP. Learn more at samhsa.gov support. That's S-A-M-H-S-A slash support. Using meth taught me everything about freedom, only not like you think. It taught me how easy it is to lose your freedom. If you think meth is taking control of you, ask for help. You have the power to be truly free. I know. I'm Jan, and I'm free from meth. If you or someone you know is struggling with meth, call 1-800-662-HELP for 24-hour free and confidential treatment referral. Learn more at samhsa.gov meth. You're listening to Dr. David DeRose on American Indian and Alaskan Native Living. Your comments and questions are welcome. Call now at 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. Here again is Dr. DeRose. Welcome back to American Indian and Alaskan Native Living. 
We're in the second half of today's broadcast, and I'm speaking with Dr. Patricia Nesbitt. Patricia has shared with us how she went on her own health journey, dealing with uh, a chronic illness that uh, that came on suddenly, so from acute to chronic, dealing with Lyme disease, how it was undiagnosed, and how it really just put her whole life into uh, a state of upheaval, unable to walk, struggling uh, with just day-to-day activities. You may be tuning in today, and you may be able to relate to that story. It may not be a Lyme disease diagnosis. It may be something else. We want to talk about uh, your work, Tricia, and how you get into a doctoral program, and as you're thinking back on your own journey, you want to help other people. To Tell us how all those dots got connected. Yeah, that's really, thank you, David. This has been, it was a long journey. So, I mean, it actually was almost a three-year journey for me to experience, be able to engage back in school, and I uh, was able to get into a doctoral program. But actually, the inspiration behind my project was actually my own personal journey. And so um, there's a proverb that says that, uh, and it's actually from the Bible and in the book of Proverbs, and it says, a person can endure in sickness, but who can endure a broken spirit? Mm. And as I was going through this journey, I realized, you know, that because of how long everything was taking, and, and sometimes even in our own journey, we don't always experience things the way we want them to. They don't always go the direction we want them to. And so there's a lot of, you know, despair that can happen or discouragement that can happen. And so what I realized from my work as a chaplain previously, and from my own personal experience, that it was important to have things for people so that they can go through a journey together and be able to navigate this unwanted change or difficulty together to be able to kind of tend and keep and nurture hope. And so I actually created a small group. I curated a small group around health principles that I basically used as my project. I looked at all the different aspects that can help to create uh, hope and healing and transformation. And I kind of included that in the small group. So that was the project idea that I felt inspired to do based on my own journey because I knew that there was other people who were experiencing what I was experiencing, though their circumstances may be different. Um, you know, I knew that it was important that people have a place to feel like they weren't alone in their journey and to feel like they could be understood. And so that burden really stayed with me to want to create something like that for others. I love what you're talking about. For those who are just hearing about the Fast Aid program on today's broadcast, the program introduces people to different types of fasts. And a lot of times when folks hear about fasting, they're thinking, oh, you're talking about leaving off this food or leaving off that. But we talk about fasting from other things as well. And one of the things that we talk about in the second week of the program is fasting from isolation. And so it's really on the same theme that you're talking about, the power of group. And uh, you're someone who's actively engaged in, in a number of settings with group interventions You've been so gracious to offer your services to be a part of our team with Fast 8, offering some group support to people who are on this journey trying to uh, really get a handle on their weight, trying to get a better handle on their health. Tell us this, Tricia. You know, it's one thing to say, hey, I want to share my experience with other people. It's one thing to develop even an intervention. I mean, it's a lot of work. 
but it's another thing to actually see if the intervention works or not. I mean, you're doing something new. Did you have a little bit of fear that, well, yeah, this helped me, but will it help anyone else? Yeah, I did have fear around that. In fact, um, you know, it, I kind of let my intuition lead me and my ministry experience kind of and my calling kind of lead me into this. Um, I tend to um, kind of go by my intuition, but um, I also learned um, that one of the very powerful things is to when you're in a group is to lead with empathy and the power of mm. empathy. And so um, the first night actually that I launched uh, the, the project, uh, actually my advisor, um, Dr. Mike Cauley and, and Dr. Kathy Beagles, they actually helped me to kind of know what was the most valuable things to do when, and along with, you know, you know, we dialogued around that. And one of the things um, I remember Mike saying was, Trisha gave your testimony. And, you know, sometimes mm. you wonder if that would be something that would be helpful, you know, to disclose right away or not. And I decided, yeah, that, that makes sense. And so I did. And I shared, I remember sharing my testimony and I remember as I was sharing, you know, there were, uh, was a diverse group of people that came. And so I remember looking in their eyes and the tears that I could see in their eyes that they, that others weren't really seeing because I was looking at them. We were in a circle, but I could see them. And that's when I realized that how important leading with empathy and leading with testimony is when, because sometimes we don't always, we're not always feeling like we can be vulnerable about our stories. And so by me sharing my story and leading in that way, it helped. I could see it was helping with others. It was really moving to see that. So how long did these uh, groups meet that you were facilitating? Yeah, so we met for eight weeks every week. And then we also had coaching where I was working one-on-one -on -one with people. And so tell us some of the specific outcomes that you saw. People, you know, you've already told us they were touched. Mm -hmm. But as far as their own journeys, I mean, what kind of things did you experience? And why should... Someone who's listening in today, I mean, it may be someone who's running a diabetes program for a tribe. It may be someone who's uh, an elder. What kind of things are helpful in these group settings when people are on a journey? Yeah, so um, I think one of the things that was really helpful to recognize and came out in my research even was that, you know, the power of empathy and the power of community. When we're going through our own personal struggle, um, or somebody's going through their own personal struggle, we can't always take that struggle away, you know, from that person. But when a person feels empathized with and understood, their burden is carried by others. Mm. And so there's something very powerful about the empathy that we can give to each other. And so that was very, uh, that was very beautiful to watch and that seeing community be developed between the people that were in the group together that was very powerful as well, because sometimes people might see, uh, you know, there was mirroring and modeling. Sometimes people would see some breakthroughs in other people that they were having first that would model for them. Hey, if that can happen for them, that can happen for me too. Mm. But then there was also this mirroring that was happening that was helping people understand that they were on the same page, that they were, that they were together in this. And so that helped to strengthen the total, the total outcome for, for each individual, uh, the total outcome for the group. And so that was really powerful too. Um, there was a synergy 
that was happening because of the intentionality of the way the group was led and, and formed that helped to create that. So one of the things that we're doing with the Fast Aid program is actually trying to capitalize on the power of group, and we're trying to do it in a virtual way, which a lot of people say is a lot more challenging. But I've been so thankful that you've been excited about coming on board and helping us with some of your expertise in this area. So as we talk about the area of weight loss, I know this is one that even mentioning it that way, I mean, weight loss, we talked in our first segment of the Fast 8 program, as the program began, that we're trying to de-emphasize the scales. We're not trying to uh, put people through another round of things that, that shame them and blame them and say, if you do all these things, well, then you'll be fine. And if you don't, that means it's your fault. We're really not in that mode at all. We're trying to encourage people to really take an interest in their health. Don't let those past narratives uh, derail them. Don't say, well, because I failed in the past, why even try? How do you see a group, a virtual group, helping in this whole process, Tricia? Yeah, so I think that, you know, before there can be physical change, sometimes we need to deal with the emotional that or and even sometimes even the spiritual or social things that have been challenged by our own physical journey or you know whatever the whatever the challenge is and so i think when you're in a group when you're in a community of people and you're having connection it is it actually helps people to feel like they can break through some of those things that have been barring their way and gives them that support um, so one of the things that came out through my dissertation was very interesting. It was actually the community, the small group community that was the most powerful component of my group. I had one-on-one -on -one coaching with people and they had content, they had information. Mm. But the most powerful component of the whole thing was actually the community that they were experiencing. So that was very key. So let me see if I understand this correctly. You compared at least three things about this intervention that you did. Mm -hmm. You were giving them content. You were giving them information, strategies, practical things. We like to think as educators, that's powerful stuff that can change people. And we're not diminishing that, but that was one of the components. Another thing was the one-on-one, -on -one, the individual coaching. You looked at that. But when you compared those two things with a third element, and that was just being part of a group, being part of a community, Actually, that community connectedness was the most important factor when you looked at long-term uh, over those couple of months? Absolutely, 100%. In fact, it almost eclipsed the other components, which is powerful because one-on-one -on -one connection is so powerful and content is so powerful. But it didn't, in, in comparison to the community and the transformation happening in the community, there was no way to compare um, or measure that to be equal. It was definitely far beyond the effective than just the one-on-one, -on -one, just the content. Wow, that is fantastic. And that's one of the reasons that I'm so excited about uh, what you're bringing to the Fast Aid program, how we're uh, making it optional. So this is uh, something that's not part of the regular curriculum. Uh, we are doing it using a spiritual model. Uh, you used a your intervention was in a faith-based context, and you used some faith-based techniques, which were drawn from a Christian spiritual framework. But what I'm telling people is 
don't let that uh, deter you from engaging with the group because I know you well enough from our interactions over the years that you're very sensitive to people from different faith backgrounds, different perspectives. But you and I both, I think, have found this. You let me know if if I'm uh, stating something that's not your opinion as well. But when you try to do things that are just generic, uh, this is a generic spiritual intervention, to me, that's not helpful, uh, anywhere near as helpful as if someone says, I'm a Muslim, let me tell you how we do this in our Muslim community. I'm a Buddhist, let me tell you as a Buddhist how we use this. I can, I'm can. i not Muslim or Buddhist. I, I'm, I come from a Christian perspective, but I can look at the practical ways, strategies they use, and I can say, you know what, this fits into my worldview. This, this would work uh, from my standpoint as well. Do you resonate with me on that, Tricia, or are we kind of on a different page? No, I resonate with you. In fact, one of the things I write about in my dissertation is that we're all of us are on a quest, I believe. And this questing, I would call it ultimately a quest for hope and sense of belonging. And so I think that's very important for us to acknowledge. And it was a diverse group that was with us. Uh, and so each of them found that common thread of hope among each other. Wonderful. We have got a final segment coming up. We do have to step away just briefly. Dr. Patricia Nesbitt is my guest. She's staying by. I encourage you to do the same. We will be back with our final segment right after these important messages. Today's broadcast has been pre-recorded. However, if you have questions about today's show or would like further information, please call 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. We'll be right back after this. If a natural disaster comes knocking, how prepared is your family? You can't just close the door on earthquakes, floods, or hurricanes and hope they go away. That's why it's important to make a plan now. Ready.gov slash plan has the tools and tips you need to prepare your family for an emergency. So if disaster shows up at your doorstep, you'll be ready. Visit ready.gov slash plan and make a plan today. Brought to you by FEMA and the Ad Council. I'm just texting him back. I'm just posting a story. I'm just changing the song. I'm just... No. When it comes to distracted driving, just don't. Sending a text takes your eyes off the road for just five seconds, but in that time, your car can travel the length of an entire football field. Any distracted driving just isn't worth it. Visit StopTextsStopRex.org. A message brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, Project Yellow Light, and the Ad Council. What is a number story? My number story started with fear and a lack of support, and it has led me to be there for others. A number story begins in our childhood with ACEs, adverse childhood experiences. My number story begins with the separation from my father and the emotional abandonment from my mother and leads to me being a role model to not only myself, but those around me by becoming the person that wasn't there for me. ACEs are so common, two-thirds of us have one. My number story begins with drug abuse and homelessness and leads to realizing that I can live life by my own standards. A study found the more ACEs, the more likely we may experience a host of serious health effects, physical and mental, but that doesn't need to be the case. Your ACE number is simply an entry point to your own story. Where it leads is up to you. My number story begins with years of emotional abuse and leads to peace, clarity, and security in my self-worth. Take control of where your number story leads at numberstory.org. 
You're listening to Dr. David DeRose on American Indian and Alaskan Native Living. Your comments and questions are welcome. Call now at 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. Here again is Dr. DeRose. Welcome back to our final segment of today's edition of American Indian and Alaska Native Living. I'm Dr. David DeRose. My guest has been Dr. Patricia Nesbitt. Dr. Nesbitt has been sharing with us her own life journey and how she's translated that into group support, individual coaching, how it's made a difference in people's lives, and how she's bringing that to bear in an exciting project that many of you have either heard about or been a part of. It's called the Fast 8 Program. You can still jump on and be a part of that program. Even though you're jumping on midway, we've made provision for that. The website is simply www.timelesshealinginsights.org slash fast8. That's F-A-S-T and the number eight. Tricia, one of the things that uh, is, has been so interesting to me is I've really tried to immerse myself more in some of the thinking of people who uh, work with some of these challenges that people face when they're trying to, to trim down, especially if they have a lot of weight to lose, maybe complications, orthopedic issues, metabolic issues. One of the interesting things that a lot of the researchers are talking about is how we really allow weight to derail our lives uh, because our society has been so good with blaming and shaming people. Uh, a lot of people are afraid to do the very things that they like to do. Maybe it is getting more physical activity, but they feel self-conscious. They don't want to go out walking. They don't want anyone to see them. Can you kind of help us out with this whole dimension of choice and deciding what's important to us? Why is this so critical? I know you used it in your group uh, sessions. Yeah, so that was one of the first principles we looked at. What is this power of choice? I remember in my journey where I had to make the choice, like I said, to look away from the problem and then look to the things that, even the small things that I can do. And it kind of makes me think of this prayer. It's called the serenity prayer. In fact, and it basically talks about helping me to discern what to change, you know, and have the courage to do it, to accept the things I cannot change and have the courage to change the things I can. And so it does take courage. It takes courage and bravery to move forward and to make choices, even the smallest choices. And and I will say that small choices are actually really powerful and are actually big choices can have a big impact. And there's a concept that when we go through a chronic situation, like I had with my chronic, you know, situation with my illness or whatever chronic situation we have, we can fall into sometimes a helplessness or develop something called a learned helplessness where we start to get so down that we, we feel defeated. And so one of the ways to combat the sort of learned helplessness is actually to do little things to make little choices in that day, like to help to strengthen our spirit, so to speak, mm. so that we can be encouraged to take bigger steps. And so that to me was really powerful. I wasn't going to be able to do big things. I had to do little things and choose to do that. And when we choose to do those little steps, whatever it may be, we're taking back that control and it does buoy us up a little bit more and it does awaken and enliven the hope. I love this concept because so many times we've been speaking about weight loss. When we speak about weight loss, so many times people focus on the scale 
But really, if we're talking about a healthy lifestyle, as we do in the Fast 8 program, we're trying to de-emphasize the scale. We don't want people to be ruled by whether the scale is up or the scale is down, because there's so many things that can affect that. A woman's hormonal cycle, fluid balance, all kinds of things. When you ate, how well you slept, uh, the list goes on and on, sodium intake. But the point is, if we're allowing ourselves to realize we have the ability to make decisions, to follow through with them, and then can start building that concept of capacity, we can make changes, we can stick with them. And to get that affirmation from community, is that fair to say that that's one of the things that community does for us, is that affirmation that we get, or is it much bigger than that? No, exactly. When we're on a journey together, and what I saw also with Journey to Wholeness was we cry together and we, in our vulnerability, in our pain, but we also celebrate together. We celebrate the victories and we understand that that little thing that we did is actually a really important and big thing. And so when you're in the context of community and you're on a shared journey, it does exponentiate that transformation because you are celebrating these little changes together. So when people are talking about groups, real time, in-person groups, sometimes that's an obstacle. People say I have transportation issues, it's at a bad time, I'm uncomfortable, I don't know anyone, so we hear all these things. With virtual groups, you may not have those constraints, but I think the obvious question a lot of people ask is, well, is this going to make any difference? I mean, it's not like I'm actually connecting with someone in person. How do you respond to that? Because I know you've been part of groups who've met in person as well as virtual groups. Yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, I have found um, both meeting on Zoom and meeting in person very powerful but I think it just depends on the intentionality of the facilitator in the group and also the goal. What we're essentially wanting to do in any kind of small group is to create a space for transformation. And so mm -hmm. as long as there's an intentionality to create that space and that place for people to experience connection, experience unity, acceptance, be inspired and have their faith, hope and love enlivened, then I think that it will, it's kind of designed in and of itself to lead to transformation. And so I believe in the power of community and I have seen that be very effective when people are intentional about facilitating that. Well, that's one of the reasons I'm so glad about your background, your experience. I mean, you have doctoral level training, your thesis is in this area, but it's not just because you've got some constructs that you've read in books. You've seen this work in your own life. You've helped other people on this journey. And I know I am so glad, as well as other people involved with the Fast Aid program, that you have been helping us as we've been collaborating. What does a group intervention look like? How do we tap into that community and that spiritual element? And then bringing that focus, that intentionality, we are really grateful to you, Dr. Nesbitt, for your willingness to join with us for a program that's uh, none of us are getting rich. It's a free program. So uh, we're just thankful that you have that much interest and commitment to this, that you're willing to share your talents with others. Yes, I believe in the power of change and the, the power of hope. And I think as people tie into that, they will experience wholeness. So, Tricia, I'm 
real enough to know that as much as I love the Fast 8 program and I'm excited about what's happening, I know most of my listeners are not going to jump on to TimelessHealingInsights.org. They're not going to enroll in the Fast 8 program. They may not be ready for another program. Weight may not be their issue, but they're involved with something. They may be on a tribal council member. They may be working with a tribal health department. They may be uh, in an urban setting, but they take part in services that are rendered by some type of Native American community group, or maybe someone's not Native. They're tuning in today, but they're saying, I have some of these needs too. I feel like I could benefit from a group. You're not talking with me about anything that I could benefit from. What do you tell someone who's listening to this interview and they're saying, I need something like this, but you haven't told me where to go. I'm in uh, Albuquerque, New Mexico, or I'm in Sacramento, California, or Orlando, Florida. I mean, I, I mean, this show is heard throughout North America. Uh, Nome, Alaska, folks listening there. What do those folks do if they want to get connected with a group, but they don't know where to turn? Wow, that's a big question. Um, a good question. So I think, you know, I think part of what helps to help us to change and to promote change in us and around us is when we understand our values and when we understand what it is that we're actually looking for, longing for. And so I think when you can identify those things yourself, like what are the values that I am seeing or that I hold and what is most important to me? Because when you go through any kind of challenge, it's always pared down to that perspective of what is most valuable to me. I think being in tune with that is the first step to knowing and being guided into that next step. And so mm. I think that's one of the first things you need to do is be able to discern your own story, right? Your own narrative and writing that down or sharing that with somebody. And I think that can help us to take those other steps. The other thing is to value yourself, value your journey, understand that we're not alone in that. So yeah, and then reaching out and looking for that place where you can be a benefit to others as well and creating community. So if I were to make a practical application just very briefly in the few moments that we have left, if someone says one of my values is being more active, then they would look in their community say, well, maybe there's a YMCA or a walking group or a, a club on the reservation. People are active and connect with that and try to give back as well as uh, benefit from it. Am I hearing that right, Tricia? Yeah, absolutely. Exactly right. You've been uh, wonderful to pull away from all your many responsibilities. Dr. Nesbitt, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate the ability to be able to share some of my journey and my story. Well, that is all for today's edition of American Indian and Alaska Native Living. I'm glad that each of you has joined us on today's edition of the broadcast. And as always, I'm Dr. David DeRose wishing you the very best of health. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.